Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. This is the Smart Passive Income Podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 268. Up, up, and away! Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's the founder and president of the 4AM Club, Pat Flynn. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me today in this session of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. I'm really excited because we're bringing back a guest who's been on the show before, and he's one of my favorite people as of late because he's the host of one of the only podcasts I listen to. I actually only subscribe and religiously listen to two different shows at this point in time. First one is The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson, who's also been a guest on the show before, but that's not who we're, uh, who we're interviewing today. Uh, we are interviewing Jordan Harbinger, the host of The Art of Charm podcast. And the reason why I only listen to two shows, I mean, if you go back in time, I remember subscribing to over 30 different podcast episodes, which was awesome because I could get and consume all that content in a very short time period. However, I realized that the more I listened to podcast episodes, the less I was actually doing to implement those things. So I've, implement, uh, I've implemented what I learned from Jeremy Franson from Internet Business Mastery, and it's a concept called just-in-time learning. And that is I only allow myself to consume information and learn about things related to the next task that I'm doing. This really helps with cutting out uh, all the things that aren't necessary right now. Now, that doesn't mean I just ignore everything else except for what's next on my list, but I put those things aside. I put them into an Evernote folder. And so I have all these different folders with topics ranging from Pinterest to Facebook advertising to uh, technology things that I find that are interesting that I just don't need right now. But when it's time, when it's time for me to start learning about Pinterest, I have all that information readily available for me. It's just now is not the right time. Now, the Model Health Show is a show I listen to consistently because I'm always focused on my health. And then The Art of Charm is one that I listen to because it's focused on personal development in a number of different ways uh, from business to relationships at home to just uh, having energy in your life and and having great uh, interactions with people, which obviously affects your entire life. And so that's uh, those are those are two shows that I listen to, even though they're not necessarily exactly related to the next thing that I'm working on. They are related to just everything that I'm doing all the time. So health, of course, important. It affects all my business. And then, of course, learning to communicate and interacting with people. Uh, that's what the art of charm helps and serves me for. And can't stop listening to it. And so I'm very happy to welcome back Jordan Harbinger from the Art of Charm podcast. You can find him. Just look up the Art of Charm on iTunes or uh, look up or go to theartofcharm.com. And what I love about Jordan, he's, first of all, a great storyteller. Teller, you'll hear that. Um, he's also a great communicator. He feel, like I feel like he knows exactly what to say, and this is obviously something he's great at. 
so great that he teaches it. And he, he does workshops and those kinds of things to help people become better versions of themselves and who they are and who they represent. And that's why I wanted to bring him on to talk more about essentially upping our game for business, for life, for communication, with relationships. And so all the things we're gonna talk about uh, related to uh, how to be a better host on your show if you have a podcast or, or a video channel, how to be a better speaker and things that go along with that to how to walk into a room and have people just immediately have a good vibe with you like all these kinds of things are really really useful especially if you start going to conferences and things like that and start interacting with people in person but even if it's done online this stuff's going to be really helpful so let's just dive right in this is jordan harbinger from the art of charm podcast here we go what's up guys i'm so happy to welcome back jordan harbinger from the art of charm podcast website and program and all things amazing related to it jordan thanks again for coming back on the show today pat this is always fun man you and I have uh, a great history. You know, we've not not only have I interviewed you and you've interviewed me, but you know, I feel like we have a a, a good vibe. You know, I, we could relate to each other. We're a lot. We're very similar with where we're at in business and stuff. We're always trading spots in iTunes and, and stuff. Um, what's what's been happening in your life recently? Like, what what what's got you excited? Before we get into some of the meaty content of the show. Sure. So we hit three million downloads for the month of February, which was super exciting. That's crazy. That's more than me. <laughs> and uh, well, you never know, man. You and I were trading. We were literally like 98 and 99 in iTunes for months and months and months and months. I just got sick of looking at us like neck and neck the whole time. Okay. Uh, so so tell me what you did. Like, how can I come back to your level now? Like, what did you do or did you do anything that actually, you know, really enhanced where your podcast was at? Yeah, you know, there were there were a few things that I did that I thought were for sure going to work and didn't do squat or maybe did a little. And there were other things that I did kind of for the love of the game that turned out to be some of the best things I could have done. So, for example, all these little tricky things, I used to ask every person who emailed in, and we're talking hundreds of people per day, I used to ask all of them to review the show. I used to ask all of them to share the show. Uh, I posted every episode on social media. I engaged mm -hmm. with everybody on those and I engaged in discussions on those and I put them on Reddit and da, 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 da. all of that contributed to very little. I mean, I got a ton of iTunes reviews, don't get me wrong, but it didn't really get us into more people's brains and more people's ears. Mm -hmm. The things that actually made the difference for me was after a while, I, well, I went on NPR and there was a journalist there that was interviewing me and she had seen me speak in an event about a hacking thing that I had done and a talk I had given about this social engineering thing that I had done. And I saw her notepad in her journal and I went, hey, do you mind walking me through your notes? And she had these great notes on my talk and she had notes on the talk that she and I had very briefly after my talk, which was like 10, maybe 10 or so seconds long. <laughs> she wrote longer than we talked just based on a few things that I'd said to her and other reporters at this event. And then we had a phone call and she had great notes on that. And then she had Googled me and found all these different sources and she had great notes on that. And I went, oh my gosh, this is how professionals prepare for a show, right? And this is a few years ago. And I started to go, all right, I'm clearly lax because she did a great job interviewing me. And I was like, oh, now I know why you work for NPR. You're really good at this. <laughs> and uh, I was on Marketplace, that show on American public media. And so then I started, instead of just having people on my show, which I used to just do this. I used to have someone on the show. I would have read their website, maybe listened to a couple episodes of their show if they had one or looked at some of their tweets and social media. And then I would interview them and have a conversation. That's how I did the Art of Charm podcast for six plus years. And after that point, we've just passed our 10th birthday. After that point, after the sixth birthday or so, uh, give or take, I started to really kick things into high gear because of that APM marketplace interview. And I started to read the book uh, of, that the person had written in its entirety. I would read the thank you page and I would reach out to some of the acknowledgements people, try to get anecdotes. I would look at the Amazon reviews. I would read the different sources online from this person. I would listen to interviews of them done by other people. Mm -hmm. And I would take these great notes or these decent enough notes. I might as well put my law degree to use uh, at some level, <laughs> put those to use. And I would create those notes and then I would go over those notes the day before the show and write questions about my own notes in my notes. And so that became the structure of the interview. And so I went from mildly entertaining conversationalist to possibly the most comprehensive interviewer that most of the guests on the show have ever actually spoken with uh, outside of their particular niche. So if I'm interviewing, say, Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs, who was just on the show recently, 
I will watch dozens of episodes of that. I will read everything that the guy's written on social media and online, and I'll read dozens of interviews about him uh, online. And that that level of preparation, even though a lot of it was redundant, really resulted in me knowing this person's content almost as well as they did. And so I started to kind of go for it with some of these guests and scientists. And I know I've done a decent job with any given interview if a neuroscientist or behavioral economist or something like that, if I ask them a question and they go, huh, good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. Yeah. Well, if I know the answer, but I think it would probably be this, 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 and this, or great question. I don't think anybody's ever caught that. You clearly read the book. Like those are the kind of things that you want going for you, because what it means is you're dragging them out of their autopilot mode in terms of giving their sound bites during an interview and you're making them think and very, very, very few show hosts do that. And if you're making the guest think you're making the audience think and for people who listen to The Art of Charm, they're not just listening because of corny jokes or something like that. They actually want to think and they want to learn. Same with your audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're making them think. They they go, huh, this is a good use of my time, not Ugh, yet another show with a bunch of crapola on it that I don't care about, right? You really want to challenge them, the guest and the audience. And that resulted in a lot of people sharing because – when people learn a lot, when they're challenged, they can confidently say, you need to listen to this show. You need to listen to the show. Not just, eh, I kind of have this one on my podcast and then this other one's kind of funny. They know that they can confidently share it because you're not going to disappoint the person they're sharing it with. So it doesn't cost them any social capital to recommend you, right? They're not going to, it's not like when you recommend a restaurant and the person goes there and goes, yeah, I got sick from that place. And you go, ugh. And then you <laughs> They think like, I'm never listening to Pat again. He's got terrible restaurant recommendations, right? They actually gain favor. They gain social capital by recommending Art of Charm because the person goes, wow, that was definitely worth it. What else, you know, what else do you have in mind? Or, you know, they want to talk about the content with their friend. And so stepping up the craft of interviewing and the preparation made a huge difference in the quality of the show, which actually resulted in a lot more sharing, which actually surprised me. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you're almost creating the show as a tool for people to gain social capital. And when you take that approach, you have to make it great or else people aren't going to share it at all. Exactly. And, and and my question to you related to that, and I told you earlier, who knows where this interview is going to go. Last time we had Jordan on the show, we were going to talk about the whole business plan of Art of Charm, and we didn't even discuss that at all. And I don't even know if we're going to get into that today. But I like where this is going right now, which A or B or C, whatever letter we're at right now is also another sign of a good interviewer, right? You kind of just take things where you want them to go based on what vibe you guys have at that time. And where I want to go right now is ask you, if you take that level of preparation, how do you make sure you still connect with your audience? Because I've listened to podcasts before where it's obvious that the person did their research, but when they're asking questions, when they're having a conversation, I'm like, I feel left out as a listener. Like, oh, I don't you skipped over a bunch of stuff. Like how, like how do you make sure you bring your audience with you instead of leave them behind? Yeah, this is really an important question because I think for us, a lot of times it's really easy for us as hosts to be so into, let's say smart passive income strategies or online business. It's really easy for us to lose the audience. And you, you kind of have to remember that every single episode you create, it's someone's first time hearing you. So you got to make sure that what you're talking about is applicable to everyone, regardless of whether or not they've heard your show before. And you've also got to make damn sure that you're not, what is that sort of term for when you're talking in a jargony bubble and nobody understands it? Is it group? It's not groupthink, but it's basically when you and I are talking in such jargony coded esoteric language that people who aren't at our level won't understand. And that's a great way to alienate your audience. And I've switched off many a podcast about business when they start talking in in that way. I've switched off many shows for every reason when they start really getting into details that are, would take me too much time to go back and think about. So you have to not only think like a beginner when you're a host, but you also have to keep the advanced folks entertained. And that's a very tough balance as a host to, to do in real time. And I think it's very crucial to make sure that you can do that. So the best hosts around, they're able to take complicated topics like what you take and make it really relatable instead of highly technical and intimidating. And that takes, in my opinion, takes years of practice. It does. It it absolutely does. And I'm still improving myself. And I'm sure you know that there are ways that you can improve as well. 
if you were to comment on your own podcast, what would be one area that you wish you could improve upon? Uh, well, it's funny you should mention that because I'm always working on some specific area of my presenting skills on the art of charm. And mm. you'd mentioned, yeah, when you're a good host, you just take things where you want to go based on the vibe you're getting. And I went through, I've, I'm going through different levels of competence when it comes to hosting, for example. So when I first started, it was like, okay, prepare everything and write an outline of the show and present it. And then after that, it was, oh, don't write an outline. It's too mechanical. Just have a conversation. And then I kind of went back to, actually, you need to have a really good outline with a lot of details, and you need to know that outline so well that you can have a conversation about it that sounds really laid back. And it sounds like you're really well-informed naturally, but you've really put in a ton of work to it. And sort of the next step for me is rounding out that vibe a little bit more. So making it sound even more conversational, even more laid back, mm. even more sort of just two guys hanging out or two, a guy, a girl hanging out, talking about business, talking about, uh, I mean, we've had the head of the CIA on recently and we had General McChrystal on recently. I mean, these are guys that live in a different world than me. Making that sound like I just sort of met them at a restaurant, we're having a conversation, that's the vibe I really want, but I also want all of the background information and learning to be present there. And to be able to deliver that vibe, but also have that amount of background study in any given topic, that's been very challenging, and that's what I'm working on right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you for, for sharing that. Do you feel like every time you go into an interview now, you're confident that it's gonna be great, or are there interviews that you go into where it just you're not getting that response that you want, and if that's the case, what do you do at that point? I actually have a lot of, I, I, yeah, I go into every interview pretty much expecting it to be great, and that's not just like, what you visualize becomes reality. I just mean <laughs> I expect it to be great because of the level of prep that's gone into it. And the I'm not afraid to kill my darlings, as our, our friend Michael Port likes to say. Mm -hmm. What I mean, and it's his wife who mostly says that, Amy Port, the re, what that means is a showbiz term. And what that means is you might create something and it's amazing and you think it's awesome and it just doesn't fit and it doesn't make it into the final product and you can't really lean on your sunk cost. And this works in business and works in writing and it works in podcasting, it works in everything. And what I mean by that is I might read an entire book and go, that was just fascinating, I can't wait to talk to this guy. And then I'll record the interview and then at the end my producer or me just goes, yeah, that was only okay. And it's very tempting to go, but but I read the whole book and we recorded the whole thing mm -hmm. and we have a picture and you know I flew to LA to record it. And it's just like, do you want to put out something that didn't end up how it was supposed to? Or do you want to kill your darlings and basically respect the audience's time knowing that what you've created is not worth putting them through? And uh, that's been very tough. And that's something that I, I had to learn the hard way a lot. But now to answer your question, there's so many things that go into show preparation and screening and guest and this and that and me and meeting with my producer and all that stuff that by the time it gets to be the point where I'm jumping on Skype or meeting them in person, that interview, there's almost no chance it can go wrong unless the person and the, the cases when it does go wrong is when usually the person is like, I'm sick today, but I'm able to do it. And you're thinking, oh, no. Or they're like, <laughs> hey, um, the studio thing broke, so I'm in a conference room. And you're just like, oh, no, this is not going to go as well as, as planned. And, uh, and so there's always those sort of little X factors, which is why real big-time radio and TV studios, those people control everything. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever been on a daytime TV show, for example, but if you have, for those of people who have, they're, they're so weirdly, at first I thought it was weird, now it makes sense. They're very good about control. Um, they're good about controlling the environment. And what I mean by that, I went on the Today Show and they're like, oh, okay, you're gonna stay at this hotel. And I thought, I live in New York. I don't really wanna stay at a hotel. It doesn't make any sense. And they go, yeah, please stay at the hotel. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So I go to stay at the hotel and they're like, we're gonna pick you up in the morning. And I thought, I can take the subway. I have a Metro card and it's five blocks away. No, 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 no. we're gonna pick you up in the morning. And I thought, all right, fine. So I go to the hotel and I get some sleep and I go up in the morning and there's a car there and there's a driver there and he drives into the underground garage at, uh, at the Today Show and then we get out and there's a makeup person and a hair person and a clothing person. And then after I did that, I remember talking to our PR person. This is when I was on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, talking with our PR person and saying, why did they do that? It's just a waste of money. And she goes, no, 
they want to know that you're not out drinking the night before. Cause I, I realized we did meet with the producer at 9 PM. That was weird. You know, this weird late meeting mm-hmm. in Manhattan to talk about seemingly nothing. And then when I got up there, the driver was there and we got in the car. So they knew as soon as that driver saw me, he could call the executive producer or the associate producer and go, got him right. They haven't overslept. They're not <laughs> drunk or hungover mm-hmm. or in action. They're not freaking out. There's nothing weird going on. They don't have a black eye. There's nothing happening here. That's going to be strange. And we go in for hair and makeup and we're there so early. And I remember thinking we're just killing time here. And the reason is because they want to make darn sure for a live show that they're, they know where you are, they're controlling what you're doing, they've got time to feed you and give you coffee and get you dressed and give you cufflinks and do your hair and make you shave again, whatever it needs, they require that level of control. Now, we can't do that as podcasters just yet. However, it really showed me the amount of thought and control that goes into creating a really good show, whatever you think of the Today yeah. Show. Mm-hmm. Every daytime TV show does something similar. And I, it, to me, that was fascinating. And it made me sort of up my own game when it came to doing this show, because people might think, oh yeah, you know, radio shows and podcasts, you just have a conversation and I'm great at conversation. No, good hosts, they make it look so easy because they're so practiced and they're so versed in the content, but truthfully, they have worked ridiculously hard to make it look as easy as as it is. It's just like an athlete playing basketball or Tony Hawk, who we had on the show skateboarding. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reason he looks like he can just sort of put one foot on that thing and cruise and do some 920s or whatever is because he's been doing it for decades. But if you get on that skateboard and you try to do a flip or a half pipe, you're going to the hospital, right? Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. That That is really fascinating, actually. I, I'd love to experience that in person. I've never done that. Um, but I think I'd be very inspired by kind of the production and how things are put together. Uh, it almost makes me remember the recent viral video that just came out. I don't know if you've seen this, Jordan, but We'll link to it in the show notes if, in case people haven't seen it, but I'm sure you probably have. It was on the BBC. Some guy was doing an interview, and this, yeah. this guy was in his home doing this very professional interview. He's in his suit at his desk, and then the door opened behind him, and it's like his little toddler toddling in, and then the, and then the one in the roller comes in, and then the mom comes or, or somebody comes in and just like rips him out of the room, and like it's just hilarious. And it just makes me wonder if you've experienced anything like that in terms of, okay, unexpected things that have happened during interviews or during recordings or, or something and kind of if you could if, if you have one in mind like walk us through it and kind of what happened from there oh yeah gosh there's so many little things that go wrong i mean once i had a different audio desk right now i've got this nice wooden custom desk that i really love it's got all my interfaces in it but before i had this big plastic roadie case like you a lot of people carry for audio gear mm-hmm. and once my cat got stuck in there in the middle of a show and it's kind of a problem because there's wires in there and not only could the cat unplug something or damage something, but I I don't know. I mean, they could get shocked. I really don't know how all that gear is built and it's really hot in there. So she might've gone in there thinking, Oh, it's nice and warm in here. And then Mm -hmm. I realized, Oh my gosh, you can't get out. And, uh, and so I've had cat issues where I've had to stop and like surgically remove a cat from a (laughs) tanglement of cables, plug everything back in and get back to it. But, uh, there was another time where I was on the Jeff Probst show he's the, the host of survivor. And this is a daytime TV show. It was like being filmed as we did it. And I sat on this couch and as I sat on the couch, there were a bunch, there was a, whoever was the guest before me, this sounds awful, but. Whoever was the guest before me was significantly overweight, and I took their seat. And at first I thought, wow, this person really squished the cushion down. It should recover soon. Maybe I'll slide over. What I didn't realize was there was clearly a board underneath this you know, cheap studio couch. There was a board that had come dislodged or a metal pole or something that had gotten dislodged and bent. So midway through one of my sentences, you hear thump and my legs go up in the air and my butt sinks down like half a foot. Oh, my gosh. Airborne with like like sitting way back like a dentist's recliner chair. (laughs) And I'm in the middle of this daytime TV show. And at the end of the day, when they aired it, finally, I mean, when it was broadcasting and it was going, it was out there. But I think in all subsequent reruns, because when I looked for the clip online, there was kind of this abrupt cut where the beginning of my sentence sounds like a sentence fragment. And then they just immediately shift to the host saying something like, well, that's certainly interesting. And it's like, what did that happen? What happened there? Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, yeah, that's when my 
feet went up three feet in the air and I ended up having to put a pillow under me so that I could sit upright. And it was the most awkward thing ever because of course, as soon as that happens, you're under studio lights, you turn red, your makeup you feel like is running. You don't want to keep touching your face because you're on camera mm-hmm. and you're sweating and you're sweating and you're sweating and you're sweating. And I'm just trying to ignore this whole thing and realizing that I'm doing a terrible job of looking calm and collected, right? All on national TV. And so uh, that was kind of fun. And I realized at that point that no matter how much effort you put into something, no matter how much kind of control you've got over the situation, there's always going to be these wild card things that happen that you just can't do anything about, like Mm -hmm. a guest sitting in your spot before you get there. Yeah, that's so funny. I love it. Now, you had mentioned uh, our good friends Michael and Amy Port, who um, help a lot of people with public speaking and getting on stage. You know, we sort of talked a little bit about the uh, podcasting stage already or studio stage, but what about the real life stage in terms of, you know, public speaking? I know that the last time we spoke together, that was something you were uh, hoping to get more into, and it obviously sounds like that's going very well for you. Uh, Tell us about that journey, what it was like to sort of shift from podcast stage to real life stage. Sure. So switching from the podcast, quote unquote, stage, a.k.a. a really hot room in my house that's probably going to be a kid's bedroom one day um, that's (laughs) soundproofed, which will also help when it's a kid's bedroom. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, The the speaking on the stage thing was interesting. The reason I picked it up was originally I thought, oh, you know, this is great. I'm going to be in front of more people. It's not really the case. Your podcast is almost certainly going to be in front of more people than the few hundred that fit into any given room. However, for me, it was kind of like, am I really that good at emceeing and hosting a show? I mean, if I can't do it on stage, am I really that good at it? And so I thought, why not just get really good at speaking? You know, because when you see people who are really good at speaking, it somehow adds credibility to just every other area of their life. And there was also something that just didn't make sense. Here I am hosting The Art of Charm about charisma, personal magnetism, networking, relationship development. It would look pretty weird if I got up on stage and was like, um, hello, everybody. And like, you know, shaking and dripping sweat. That wouldn't look too good. It would look like I didn't walk the walk. So I did hire Michael and Amy Port to whip me into major speaking shape, created a keynote, which I've given a lot of times on really big stages. And I, like you, I felt like I just kind of was decent at it and it became really fun. I mean, you give huge keynotes, you give really good ones. It seems like you're also into speaking, right? I mean, you're, you can't not be if you're hiring friggin' DeLoreans to roll. <laughs> I've had a, such a blast doing it. It's something that reminds me of when I used to perform uh, with the band, the, literally the marching band, um, not the rock band, although that was probably my dream back in the day. But even before marching band, you know, you practice something, you're rehearsing it over and over and over again, and then all of a sudden it's time to go out and perform, and that's what I feel like when I'm on stage. And I get that rush that I got back in the day, and I sort of zone out when I'm on stage, and it's just on autopilot because I've been practicing so much. And then afterwards, I'm just like back into reality, and I'm like, what just happened? And I just I have this amazing high coming off of stage. And plus, the interactions that you have with people afterwards, I'm 100% you've experienced this as well. People coming up to you saying, what a great job you did. But not only that, just how much they've learned from you and how much – you've been able to affect their lives or what, what their decisions are going to be from that point forward. It, it, it really is an amazing experience to have. I mean, what do you feel being on stage and after it's all done? I always am secretly relieved that it's over. I'll tell you that. But I love the fact that I'm able – speaking was also great for these reasons. Yeah, let me – that's a great question. I love the feeling I get when it's done. I love the feeling of the visibility and the people coming up to talk to you and saying they really like it. But you're you're right. There's one thing that I missed that was one of the main reasons what I learned how to speak, which was when you go to an event and you're a speaker, not only do you get promo from the event, from the marketing and from everybody knowing who you are, but when you go to an event and you want to talk to one of the speakers, they're often really busy and other people are slammed and et cetera, et cetera. But if you want to go to an event and talk to one of the speakers and you're another speaker, they're often like, yeah, let's go to dinner mm-hmm. or speaker dinner at the VIP thing. Or you say, hey, me and some of the other speakers are going to go grab a beer. Do you want to come with us? And you're kind of in this other pool of people that are sort of pre-screened and vetted. And so these really, really busy speakers will often say, yes, I want to go and hang out with the other speakers. And so it's 
kind of it's kind of like an automatic ultra VIP ticket to every event that you go to that is also free or even ROI positive in that some events will pay you to come and speak and take you to a speaker dinner and put you up at a retreat after the event with all of the other speakers. And in fact, I'm going to an event in Australia called We Are Podcast. It's a podcasting event. And the event itself is really fun. The people are really cool who are in it. But after that event, there's a speaker retreat that's four days on the beach at a beach house. And it's awesome. And I went last year and I ended up becoming really good friends with all these people staying in this house and, you know, grilling up veg- veggies and eating and going surfing and swimming. And that's the kind of thing that you you actually couldn't buy a ticket to that. Right. You just yeah. It was an experience only available to the event organizers and some of the speakers at the event. And that kind of access creates relationships, which, as you know, from the entire point of the Art of Charm is that relationships are your strongest lever. So being able to put myself in a position that created those super strong relationships and those levers was a no brainer, even though it required learning how to speak, facing my fears, paying a bunch of money to have Michael Port, one of the best guys in the world, and Amy Port train me how to do this and flying out to them to do it for it was a 20 day class I took with them spread out over four weeks in Frickin' Philadelphia, and I live in San Jose. So it wasn't cheap in terms of time or money, but it was so worth it to to learn that skill set. Yeah, I mean, was that something you were planning for in in terms of connecting with other speakers as you were starting to become a speaker, or is that a byproduct of everything? It, it was actually something I was planning for, which is why I was surprised I didn't mention it earlier. I was actually planning that because I thought, oh, I'm going to speak at some events and I'm going to meet the other speakers. Yeah. I didn't think that some of those speakers would become some of my closest friends. Like I've met you speaking at an event. I, I think we may have known each other before, but we definitely hung out at different events as speakers. I know, was it NMX or something? New yeah, Media? yeah way back in the day. But that, that's when we met each other. We got close and we've since stayed connected with each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I met Noah, I don't know if you know Noah Kagan. I met him For at sure. FinCon, uh, where you were also, and now he's one of my closest friends. Super strange guy, love him, but... <laughs> I'd have probably met him had we not been speaking on the same stage together. And it's just, I've met a lot of my closest friends by hanging out at some weird speaker dinner thing and then like going bowling or whatever, right? And just being like, oh my gosh, this is a really cool sort of club to be in. And the way to do that is to get really good at delivering content because mm-hmm. you can you can know content really well. But if if you can't deliver it on stage, people just don't want to have you come to the event. But if you got great content or good content and you can knock it out of the park, well, now you're in Vegas driving a DeLorean uh, with your hat on backwards, like Back to the Future, like you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I miss those days. That was fun. Um, when So obviously speaking wasn't something that came natural to you, or was it? I mean, I know you were very well-versed in, in podcasting, obviously, and obviously in person and socially as well, but being on stage is a whole different ballgame. What were some of the challenges for you? Why did you need to hire Michael and Amy? Well, for me, I knew that I was okay at speaking. Like, I could get up there and be really nervous, and I could talk and sort of hide those nerves. And I was a little sweaty, and I didn't really know what I was doing, and I was pacing around a lot and mm. talking really, really, really fast. And it was passable. But I'd started to, the, the Art of Trauma as a show has a, a large enough audience, I, we mentioned that before, but I also started to get contracts, or I should say we started to get contracts from the United States government, special forces, we have a lot of intelligence agents and special operators, uh, special forces personnel coming through our live program in California, where we teach things like body language and nonverbal communication. And so a lot of those units were like, yeah, before we send our guys through, why don't you come to Fort Lewis? Or why don't you come to Second Ranger Battalion and give us a quick preview of what we got? And, the, you know, I'll have the I'll have the the colonel there and he can, you know, approve this and all this. And I thought, OK, I can't just show up and be passable or even just good. I've got to go there and be like, they have to go, all right, we can't afford not to hire this person's company. They are mm-hmm, a charm. Mm-hmm. We ha- they, they have to just be wowed. And I'd taken a ton of speaking classes and a lot of the classes I had okay to mediocre to even poor advice. And I found that the people in the classes were people who were like, my boss said I can't get a promotion unless I know how to get, you know, run a meeting. And I'm thinking, ugh, okay, I'm not really still stuck at that level. And so I was taking classes with those people over and over and over and over again and spending thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on classes like that. And John Corcoran, another mutual friend of ours, introduced me to Michael Port. And I thought, this guy is super cool, 
super charismatic. His wife, Amy, is like really outgoing and they're clearly really good at what they do. And then I watched a couple of videos of them and I went out to dinner with them and they talked about how they have this event, Heroic Public Speaking. And I mm. thought, okay, I'm totally going to go check that out. And I went there thinking maybe they're good at it, but can they really teach these skills? Because at The Art of Charm, we teach a lot of nonverbal communication, and it's I know how hard it is to teach this type of skill. Most people cannot do it. And we have a week-long program where people stay in our school. So I thought, how are they going to teach people how to speak? And you know, This event must be really intense. And sure enough, I went there, and I stayed in the hotel where the event was, and I saw them pull people up on stage, and the people got so much better so quickly that I actually thought maybe it was fake. I actually thought, yeah. wait a minute, is that real? And I saw them do that over and over through the weekend to the point where I thought, okay, this is definitely real. And then when they offered that intensive program, they had a couple of people who bought, uh, I, I should say they had a few people who bit on that one and a lot of people bought. And I, I for one thought, if they can do that in an hour or not even, sorry, probably in like 15 minutes on a stage demonstration, what are they, what can they do in an hour and what can they do in a month, which is how long this course was split up over weeks. So for me, it was a no brainer to, to hire them for that because I'd already taken a lot of other coaching that was subpar. And that's, I think, similar to the reason why a lot of people hire uh, and come to the Art of Charm program is because they take a course like Dale Carnegie and it's like, have a firm handshake and look people in the eye. And, you know, we're kind of like, okay, look, if people aren't giving you jobs, they're not giving you clients, they're not giving you uh, gigs, relationships, friendship, love, intimacy, whatever, it's not because you don't have a firm handshake and you have bad eye contact. <laughs> There's something else going wrong here. You're not developing rapport. People don't know, like, and trust you. Let's get down to brass tacks. And so that's what I started to focus on. So when I see people who really dig deep with, with their coaching, with their content and things like that, that for me is a really good sign that I need to basically get on that train with that person, with that coach. That's really cool. We ha uh, I've actually promoted heroic public speaking back in the day. I was a part of the program when it first started. Um, I highly recommend it. It's, it's amazing. I got a lot of great information there, plus the community of people there. Everybody's outgoing and you know there for the right reasons. So uh, that's a free plug for them. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> did we just get tricked into giving Michael a support? <laughs> See how good he is at this stuff? He's just, Dang. I don't know, man. The programming um, is still running in fact. <laughs> I do want to talk about Art of Charm and, and what you guys teach people. I mean, not just the podcast, which is obviously amazing, but your program. I think a lot of people don't even know you know, at least on, on our end here, that this program is, exists and really what it's for. Um, I think talking about, you know, social engineering and those kinds of things are really fascinating. I mean, the things that we don't even, before we even say a word, we're already saying a number of things. I mean, where where would one even start with getting better at that those kinds of things? I mean, this is this is a skill that nobody teaches that I know of, or it's, not, it's obviously not taught in school. It's just something you learn over time, and some people never learn it. I mean, where would one even start with improving the way they are socially with others? Sure. So this is something that I, I may have touched on in another show with you years ago, but yep. I don't think I gave the same exact drill. And and so basically the, the there's no real easy wins when it comes to charisma, magnetism, nonverbal communication. So I'm going to give the easiest win that I can, and it still takes a little bit of work, but cool. it's, it's game changer. Uh, we are always forming first impressions of people non-verbally. And this is counterintuitive because a lot of folks think that our first impression is made when we open our mouth, but that's not the case. It's made when we become a blip on other people's radar. So when they see us, and this is just evolutionary psychology, there's reasons for this that have to do with safety and security. And if you don't believe me or you wanna test it, walk outside your house or walk outside your office or wherever you are, and the next few people you see that you're not related to, you're gonna start making quick judgments like, this person's athletic, this person's not, this person looks like they might be strange, this person looks a little dangerous, this person's a little bit of a hipster, this person looks really tall. I mean, just very basic observations that to us are constantly going through our subconscious mind these things happen all the time. And it doesn't matter if you think you're not a judgmental person, your brain has evolved to think this way. And so what this means is that, of course, other people are doing this to us as well, for better or for worse. And that means that our first impression is always made non-verbally because they see us before they can hear us or before they can engage with us. Mm -hmm. For most of us, for many of us, this is a problem because that means that that first impression, that non-verbal first impression is maybe 
the kind of impression that you get when you look at somebody who's been seated at a computer for 18 years, that works really hard and is kind of tired, that's distracted and looking at their phone or looking at the ground or dazing off into space. So we need to make sure that our nonverbal communication is on point. And a lot of people know this. And so when they walk into work or they walk into a networking event or they walk into a presentation, they're, they've got their chin up and their chest back and their shoulders back and the smile on their face. And that's great. But the problem is, our, our conscious mind really only has so many bits of computational power. And so if I'm coming into an event and I'm talking with you, I might be able to be present and I might also be able to sort of micromanage all my body language. But if I'm really nervous or if I'm feeling a little bit like maybe vulnerable, which is ideal up to a certain point in an interaction with somebody, my body language and nonverbal communication is going to reflect my internal state. We're always communicating whether we want to or not, and we're always communicating our internal state whether we want to or not. And so the way that we start to see, or the thing that we start to see is that our nonverbal communication starts to degrade as we get into conversations and interactions with other people. Mm -hmm. Or when we think other people aren't looking, we default to our default mode of nonverbal communication, which might look like a guy who sat at a computer for 18 years. So we have to relegate and delegate our nonverbal communication to the level of habit. And the way that we do that is what, with what we call the doorway drill. And when it's a habit, we don't have to think about it anymore and it becomes our default. And the doorway drill is this, it, unless you're driving right now, stand up straight, shoulders back, chest up, chin up, smile on your face. So in other words, shoulders back, chest up, chin up, smile on your face. Open, positive, confident body language. What that does is, of course, we know that the mind follows the body and the body follows the mind. That's kind of recent, generally accepted science. However, I want you to go through a doorway. Every time you go through a doorway in your house, straighten up, chin up, chest up, shoulders back, smile on your face. And you don't have to exaggerate. You're going to look like kind of a, a dweebus. If, <laughs> if you try hard if you're really exaggerating this. But Every time you walk through a doorway, even in your own house, your own office, straighten back up like that and have that open, confident, positive body language. And we, we're going through doorways hundreds of times per day, sometimes depending on how busy we are. So what I recommend in order to just not forget to do this drill every time, grab a set of post-it notes, those little tiny ones that are like hot pink. Put them at eye level on every door frame that you use in your house. And what that does is it breaks the autopilot pattern that we go through all the time. Mm -hmm. And every time you go through the door, you'll see that little post-it note and you'll think for just a split second, what the heck is, oh yeah, right, doorway drill. And you'll straighten up and you'll eventually over time develop that upright, open, positive, confident body language as a habit. And of course, when you go through a doorway, often you're leaving a room, but usually as well, just as usual, I should say, you're entering a room. So if you straighten up and you've got that open, positive, confident body language every time you enter a room, there you are with that great nonverbal first impression. And this is great because not only can we then be present, we don't have to worry about who's looking at us and when, because we always have that default nonverbal communication, that body language. And since we judge other people subconsciously when we see them, and we know that they do the same thing to us, those subconscious judgments tend to be what? Open, positive, confident in response to our body language. Mm -hmm. And when we judge people that way, their behavior towards us changes because they're treating us as if we are upright, open, confident, positive people. And other people's treatment of us also informs our opinion of ourselves. And so when other people treat us that way, we start a positively reinforcing cycle of a different first or a different self-impression that we have of ourselves. So we're not only being treated differently, we're starting to feel differently. And that's what changes it from just faking positive, confident body language to an, a core level identity shift in the way that we see ourselves, not just the way that other people see us. What's going through your head when you're entering that room? Me, I'm just thinking, you know, I might even be thinking open, upright, positive, confident body language, or I might just scan the room for the first person near me and I might just say hello. So mm -hmm. I'm generally looking to create relationships depending on where I am. I mean, if I'm in Starbucks and I'm like, hey, Jordan Harbinger, how you doing? And we deal. <laughs> or you need a used car? Here you go. Like, I'm not doing that, right? But I might walk into that room and usually I'm not even thinking about straightening up because it's just a default habit pattern at this point. So I'm really probably not thinking about any of this consciously. I'm just straightening up by force of habit because that's when I walked into that room and did that. If I'm at a networking event or something, my behavior might be different. If I'm at a conference event, if I'm at FinCon uh, and I'm going to an event or if I'm at some sort of thing with business or other speakers or an audience, I might be thinking, all right, I'm here to meet people, start talking. But yeah, if I'm just there to get coffee, 
Uh, I'm not there to overthink this. I'm just to have that type of nonverbal communication so that I'm treated in a certain way so that it then reinforces my my perception of myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And I really love that exercise. It's a very simple one, but I think can lead to some great habits in that positive feedback loop, like you said. Um, When you are at an event, for example, obviously the thing you need to do is start talking to people, like you said. How do you engage in a conversation. I think this is, I think we've also touched on this a little bit the last time, but it's definitely worth bringing back up. And I don't know if you've come up with a similar strategy for how to approach just initiating a conversation, because correct me if I'm wrong, that's the hardest part, just starting a conversation. Typically, once you're in it, you can just have a natural conversation. But how do you even start a conversation? Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. There's a lot of people who can probably start conversations and then go, oh, crap, I don't have anything to say. And then they sort of like dip out. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a less common problem than people who are thinking, I don't know how to start a conversation. And frankly, I totally sympathize with that. I think that a lot of people put too much pressure on starting conversations with other people because they're worried about having their agenda kind of come through on that. And I think Mm. if your agenda is what can I get from this person because I'm at this event to get clients, you're going to feel a lot more pressure to start conversations and have them go well. And at Art of Charm, we call that outcome dependence, where if you're, say you're a financial planner and you're at a conference and you're like, I need to get a bunch of clients so that this event is ROI positive. Every conversation you start, you're thinking, all right, this is a sales conversation. And that's a bad mindset to have because then you have something that you can lose during that interaction. But if your agenda is that that sort of mindset is ABC, always be closing. And at Art of Charm, we would call this ABG, which is always be giving or always be generous. And so what that means is I'm just looking for ways I can help other people that I meet. And that makes starting conversations a lot easier because then it's kind of like, well, the tactic doesn't really matter. I can just introduce myself. And if that person is thinking like, oh, what does this person want? That doesn't last very long because I'm generally, if I'm trying to help them, I'm showing genuine curiosity. Where are they in from? What do they do? Uh, What other people are they looking to meet at that event? Those are the types of questions that you find yourself asking when you're looking to help other people. So when I go to events like that, rather than thinking, what can this person do for me, ABC, I'm always thinking, ABG, what can I do for this person? And so I might go up and talk to somebody that is saying like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm really looking for somebody who can help my food truck business get off the ground. And I'm not thinking, great, this person's going to hire me. I'm going to do this food truck consulting or whatever. I'm thinking, oh, uh, I wonder if they know about Pat Flynn's food truck stuff. I should introduce them to that. I'm going to get their email and send that stuff to them or send an intro to somebody who works in that business with you. And that makes it a lot easier to interact because there's nothing for me to lose there. Mm -hmm. And I know that I'm doing them a favor. So I really have no nerves or anxiety about that interaction because they're kind of lucky that they met me at that point because I'm going to help them out with something if at all possible. And since the agenda is totally different, the mindset is totally different. Then we're just mostly coming down to tactics, right? Like, well, what do I say? What can I do? And the tactics become so easy because since they can't really reject me because they don't know me um, and they can reject my help, which is just weird in in on their behalf, I think it's just strange. I'm not really worried about introducing myself and saying, where are you in from? What kind of people are you looking to meet at this event? And things like that. And the more practice you have doing that, the more natural those types of interactions become. So I find that people are mostly nervous when they want to get something out of that particular interaction or that particular engagement or that particular relationship. So when you change the mindset and you change that agenda, the tactics change and it becomes so much easier to do. And it's still possible even if you are sent to a conference with a specific ROI, you can still change the mind in the way of approaching a conversation. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can definitely, and let me see if I'm getting the right question. If you find that somebody needs help with something and you're just the person for it, you can then, yeah, build a relationship with that person, build some trust, follow up with them and say, oh, actually I might be able to help you with that. But since it wasn't your goal all along to kind of enroll them in your particular business, Mm -hmm. Starting of the interaction is so much easier. If I start an interaction thinking, all right, I need Pat to invest in me. I need Pat to invest in me. I need Pat to invest in me. When I'm walking up to you, I've got a lot. The stakes are high. But if I'm just thinking, how can I help Pat? How can I help Pat? Okay, I've got some ideas. Let's see what they really need. And then I start a conversation with you. The stakes are pretty low because even if you're like, well, I'm really busy right now. I can't talk. 
that's fine. I didn't need anything from you. I was going to help you. It's kind of your loss at that point. Yeah. Right? And, but if you're like, oh, I really need somebody who can host a good podcast and edit audio. And I, yeah, I might go, oh, actually, that's kind of what I do. Here, give me your email. And it becomes very much laid back. And the agenda isn't super transparent because I didn't have it walking into the interaction. Right. And like you said, they almost feel lucky to have found you at that point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, man, this is great stuff. I feel like we could talk about this stuff for days, and luckily you've already done that on your show, the Otterchon Podcast, so I highly recommend you all check this out. This is just a slice of what you can get on that show. So, uh, Jordan, any any final words of advice for people who are you know just starting out in their business career and they want to go out there and you know they're meeting people, they're producing content, they are typically doing the right things, but they're just maybe not getting the results yet. What could be that one piece of advice from Jordan that can really – they could really take take with them in, into the kind of next space and next level that they're trying to get into. Sure. So aside from the doorway drill and ABG always be giving, I would say that one of the main things that I see uh, in people who are entering the business world or, or in fact, just creating relationships and networking for any reason is there's a lot of people that are keeping score. And that's a really bad habit. And what I mean by that is, um, say I help you, I, Oh, Jordan, I need a new web host. And I'm like, Oh, I've got a great guy for that. Or I know graphic design. I can help you with this and that. And the other thing I want to always be helping people and giving generously without the expectation of something in return. And the reason is because most people won't be able to help you back right away or even over time. They just won't. There's just not going to be a fit. There's not going to be a reason that they can help you. There's not going to be an opportunity to help you. They might not have the expertise to help you. So the problem with keeping score is if I help you with something and I think now you owe me one, mm -hmm. well, when you can't help me or you won't help me, then I've created a covert contract. And what, what a covert contract is, is I think, well, I help Pat with that graphic design person, so he owes me one. And if you're unable to reciprocate, the covert contract is broken. And it's covert because you don't know about it. It only exists in my head. Right. right. And, and when it's broken, I start to resent you and go, you know what? Screw that Pat Flynn guy. He's a selfish jerk. And that's not really true, right? I was helping you in theory because I just wanted to help you. But if I keep score and other people don't reciprocate, which happens a lot, that resentment that only exists in my head because that contract only exists in my head starts to poison the well. And it starts to build that resentment up so that next time you're like, hey, Jordan, you want to go out to dinner with us? I'm just thinking, the ball's on this guy asking me to go eat some food after he stiffed me on that graphic design project. How dare you, Pat Flynn? Meanwhile, you think we're friends and I'm just a total jerk face, right? <laughs> And people do this because it's natural. Reciprocity is very natural. But you cannot and you should not keep score because of those covert contracts. They will destroy pretty much every relationship that you find yourself in because even if people do reciprocate, if you've got a covert contract, very often the other people's reciprocation is not enough to satisfy what you think they owe you in your own mind. And you end up really burning a lot of bridges that shouldn't be burned at all. And you end up forfeiting a lot of relationships that could have turned out really well, except for your keeping score. So don't do that. Get used to not being reciprocated and just be okay with it. And you'll find that your relationships are really fruitful. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a really amazing piece of advice. And on the other side of that, like, for example, if the other person does reciprocate and they reciprocate way over the top and you're keeping score, it almost makes you feel like you're behind and now you have to make up for it. Right. Yeah. It creates anxiety, right? Yeah. You're like, oh man, this person did something really good for me. And if I don't reciprocate, they're not going to like me anymore. And that's 99% of the time, totally untrue. Mm -hmm. And in the 1% of time that it is true, that person's keeping score. And it's only a matter of time till you can't pay them back and reciprocate. And then they're pissed at you. So keeping score is never good on any side of the coin, any side of the fence.